Welcome to What If. I'm your host, Karim Ostechny, and today we have a good friend of mine, Vladimir Nikolok, with us. Uh, Vladimir, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Vladimir is an expert in the interaction between machine learning and the ethics and governance of AI. Um, and he's currently founder and CEO of ImmaLearn. Can you share us a few ideas about the topic and what you're planning to do with ImmaLearn? Yeah. For sure. So Imadan was founded out of two insights. So one, that we have incredibly powerful techniques to make sense of complexity and specifically to make sense of the human needs and desires that exist. So if you take, for example, social media algorithms, or if you take Spotify, um, if you take Uber or, you know, video recommendation services, all of those things, uh, private sector initiatives to offer you the best and uh, individualized service, right? And this is done by analyzing vast amounts of data with fairly complicated uh, statistical models. And those models then help you, you know, um, suggest to people the, the content that is most relevant to them. Mm -hmm. So Imalan was founded out of this idea of bringing those techniques, this, this ability to understand individual needs to the social public sector. Mm. So how can we use algorithms in, say, education programs to understand who needs what type of support, right? Uh, a student that is struggling in an education pro uh, program has a certain probability of dropping out of the program. How can we calculate this probability? And then if two students have a probability of dropping out of, say, 75%, they're not the same, right? Like mm. one student might struggle just with the academic environment because he or she doesn't come from an academically focused maybe family background right another person might struggle with say substance use right and those are two completely different individuals and they need different interventions and so machine learning in the social and public sector helps us make sense of that complexity of needs and improve the impact of social programs and that's what Imaline essentially does we build the type of algorithms for uh, those organizations I see can you give an example of one of your clients that has been a good use case for that? Sure. So we work together with uh, an amazing nonprofit in the US. They're called Year Up. Mm -hmm. And they run a one-year education program for students from difficult social backgrounds, working minimum wage jobs or being unemployed. And they, within this one year, take them to Fortune 500 company job careers. Right. Um, they've done very rigorous impact measurement and they can prove that the program works. Right. And their issue is that a lot of students actually drop out because the program is so hard for them. So roughly a third of students uh, every year doesn't get the life-changing benefits of actually completing the program. And for them, it's a big difference, right? Like a difference between a life that is socially and <clears throat> economically very fulfilling and one where they kind of go back to working minimum wage jobs and being at heightened risk of kind of social um, um, challenges. And so they are saying, okay, how do we reduce this dropout rate? And what we did is we took the data, the students that they've seen in the past, um, which are thousands of students, and we know which of those students actually completed the program mm -hmm. and which did not complete the program. Mm -hmm. And we know a lot about the students themselves. We right. know that we have demographic information. We know how they... Um, do uh, in the program during the term. And so we trained an algorithm to recognize patterns of vulnerability, 
right? And that allowed us to build a system where we have one model that before the term even starts, gives you a rough um, idea of who has some signs of vulnerability and who doesn't, which students. And then as the term starts and we get more information on the kind of like academic performance and the social performance that they have, we actually update that prediction and we define certain vulnerability groups. And there's one group where, uh, you know, you get, it's just business as usual. You just get the right. standard program. And there's a second group where you kind of get additional time with, with an advisor, but where we don't say that you necessarily have to drop out. You just kind of get a little bit more attention. And then there's a high support group where there are significant signs of struggle mm -hmm. and where it's very important to preemptively both kind of like talk to a student, but also define certain support interventions that help him or her get through the program successfully. I see. So it's a constant update on the algorithm. And it feels more like a personal assistant for the student then, right? Exactly. Case. Exactly. It's like, it's as if you have like, uh, almost like maybe like a benevolent advisor or mentor that is trying to kind of like, you know, see whether or not you need additional support and then kind of raises a hand mm -hmm. if, you know, additional support might be warranted. Okay, so how was the feedback from the students in terms of getting in touch with you guys and getting the feedback from a machine? Did it feel natural for them or did they feel like that's, that's so far out of my comfort zone, I'm not trusting that machine? Yeah, so we kind of are just about to pilot the uh, project uh, in the first uh, sites. Mm -hmm. So it will be interesting to hear right like from the staff that uses the system um, how useful you know the insights that we generated actually are um, so we'll definitely keep you posted on that mm -hmm. I think one big challenge is actually from a design perspective right like right how do you design a machine learning kind of report how do you visualize those insights in a way that are supporting human judgment but are not bulldozing it you know right. because you can go come to a person and say look there's this incredibly complicated model it makes sense of so many data points and it was you know it was built to 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 deal with complexity that the human mind just can't deal with right like how do you ensure that it's not uh that it's just like one data point in the human decision but that the human can still see all the things that are not codified in the data or are not codifiable in the data, right? like mm. behavioral clues, motivation, you know, a change of heart. Mm. It's incredibly difficult to get to have that in the data. The algorithm is blind to whatever is not in the data. So you actually right. really need to put this human pattern recognition and machine learning pattern recognition together to make the best decision uh, for the student. I see. Before we come to our what if question, maybe let's also have a look at your quite impressive CV. Like you studied philosophy in Oxford, public policy in Harvard, you work for McKinsey, United Nations. How did all those different stops or experiences in your life shaped you for founding Immalearn? And, and if you look at the vision that you have for Immalearn, and if you look at the development aid uh, globally of nearly a half trillion dollars, how, what do you want to do mm -hmm. to shape aid in the future? Yeah, so I would say that, you know, there was, I think the UN was, was, was a very important experience because I was working um, in a 
team that was trying to come up with a regional crisis response plan for the Syria crisis, mm -hmm. right? So Syria itself always gets a crisis response plan, but then the countries surrounding Syria um, have, they are hosting a lot of refugees. Um, and so they get a lot of support from the international community to finance education and health and workforce and, and shelter and protection initiatives. And our team was trying to figure out, okay, like how do we draft a plan, you know, where those uh, $2.5 billion that are donated every year kind of are allocated and accounted for in a meaningful way. And what I realized is that it's incredibly hard for a lot of UN agencies to take evidence-based decision, right? If we spend $400 million uh, on education and we ask ourselves, what of that has worked? Which initiatives have worked? And which of the initiatives have not worked? It's almost impossible to tell, mm. you know? And even in the best operations, you should assume that at least like 20% of your stuff doesn't work. Mm. And I think in, if you look at circumstances that are as difficult as with the Syria crisis, you should actually assume that probably 70% of your stuff doesn't mm. work, right? And this inability to identify what actually works and then scale that means that we waste, I think, a lot of resources. And I think more importantly is that we fail some, some of the most vulnerable people in the world mm -hmm. that are relying on us to do the best job we can possibly do, right? right. And so that that was kind of, I think, one piece, piece of the puzzle. And um, the other piece was that you know, at, at McKinsey, you kind of see how the private sector takes decision and they have something called business intelligence, right? Which right. is like medium to good quality piece of information that if you combine that with human judgment, it just allows you to get like a five or 10% edge, mm. you know, in like trying to decide whether or not you should enter a market or reorganize your company or whether you should invest in a new product. And like the idea was a little bit like, okay, well, why don't we use the data that is kind of collected by the UN agencies and by um, impact investors and nonprofits and governments and combine it with machine learning and create the type of impact intelligence that allowed allow them mm -hmm. to get this 10 to 15% edge, right? Like, like just improve the decision-making of them. And so like um, both Oxford and Harvard were instrumental in like helping me to develop those skills, right? Like where mm. does it actually take to, from a technical perspective, to develop a machine learning algorithm? But also on the other hand, what does it, what does it take to help organizations change, right? Like, and what, what, what type of culture would you need to establish, right? Like what, what are the incentives of people to uh, fund certain innovative projects. All of those things, I think, need to come together to realize the ultimate vision, which is to have a social sector and, 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 and a public sector that makes sense of individual needs at scale, right? Like mm -hmm. that understands every single individual, the needs at least of them, and then responds to those needs as effectively as possible. Because right now, I think we're failing a lot of people just because we don't understand them on an, on an individual level. Mm -hmm. We always understand them on an aggregate level. Right. Um, and that, I think, can only be done if you use machine learning also responsibly, right? So like we also know that machine learning can be used to maintain political power. Like maintain... Cambridge Analytics, maybe? Cambridge Analytics, for example, is a great, is a great example where you try to use um, information about the needs of people to size power, right, and mm. to manipulate. Um, I think certain authoritarian governments in the world are using machine learning to maintain um, structures of political oppression, right? right? So 
again, right, like here, there, we have a huge amount of work to do to define the type of principles and constraints right. that help us use this very powerful technology um, in a responsible manner. Okay. How, if you would say it on a percentage level, um, the percentage level of the prediction of MLearn or your tool at the moment, how high is that? So it depends on the project, obviously, and it depends a little bit on the data set you have. So mm -hmm. various data sets have various, what we call, degrees of signaling power. Mm -hmm. uh, it also depends on the question that you're trying to ask, right? So um, I think when we try to predict dropout, we can identify over like around two-thirds of students successfully. So at least once they're flagged in the system. Mm -hmm. And that's a very large number for that specific for that specific organization. But if you would want to try to predict maybe harder things, something like um, what will a student earn in five years? You know, here the data might be not as predictive and not as good, and so then you would ex expect your performance to go down. But we haven't done this analysis yet, so I can't tell you. Right. But what I can tell you is. It, just depends on both the data and the kind of the, the difficulty of the question you're trying to answer. Okay, understood. All right, um, it sounds very very interesting, and I think on a certain level, also as mentioned with the eight very important tasks, too, right? Because we cannot invest and put money blindly in things and just believing it might be helpful, but rather looking at the facts. Um, and now with our uh, uh, what if show, we're really trying to expand humans' minds to mm -hmm. unlock the, I call it the imagination resource. I think it's a huge resource we barely use. Um, and, and to go deeper in this now with you, imagine what <clears throat> if we were able to predict any event in the world by 100%. Right. Like in the movie Minority Report probably. Yeah. But it would be interesting to dive deeper a little bit because I mean it's probably also your goal to come closer with the prediction more and more. Um, how do you think the world would look like? Also, if you would look in the past, if you look at any historical moment, if it was able to predict, um, and how it could change society and the world in the next years? Yeah. Well, that's an incredibly, <clears throat> I think, interesting question. And I think uh, exploring it requires a lot of help from you as well, Karin. So, um... <laughs> that's why I put some more water in. <laughs> So um, I'm actually looking forward to going down the various paths. Um, and if I would <clears throat> kind of like structure it, like I, th I think there are at least two ways in which we can look at it. So one is what happens like practically, right? Like what type of problems are immediately solved and what type of problems in practice in real life are actually immediately created by essentially killing uncertainty. Right, like yeah, you kill exactly. uncertainty is dead. People don't like uncertainty. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, it's dead. Um, and then the second thing is, I think, like a, an interesting kind of like moral dimension to it. Like, like what does it do to our society if suddenly we can tell, right? Like uh, we we can predict everything. Um, so I think on the first part, there are a couple of industries that you know weirdly like vanish in in some way, right? Like I mean, insurance is about dealing with uncertainty, right? It's a model that pulls risk because we don't know. But if you do know, mm -hmm. and actually we're going with predictive algorithms in that direction, if I can tell you when you're going to die, 
or what what d- diseases you're going to have. I can charge you. I don't even need to charge you probably, you know, like I'm just going to tell you, you know, <laughs> and I'm going to I'm going to tell you like, look, you don't like you don't need insurance to be honest. Like, <laughs> this is going to be your life, you know, um, f- uh, like that. And, and, and I'm sorry, but like, you know, or, or I'm, I'm happy for you, you know, whatever, whatever the outcome is. Um, you know, so the, the, the other thing is, I think it, it gives rise to this weird, um, yeah, I don't know, like completely lottery-based society, you know, where you know exactly what type of people should do what because they have certain kind of talents and, you know, you kind of understand them and all of, like, in a, in a weird way, killing uncertainty means killing um, not only uncertainty about the future, but actually uncertainty about the present and the past, right? In order to predict something, you need to understand it first. So if I want to predict who you're going to be, I need to understand you in your entirety, right? You know, and me understanding you in your entirety means that I can allocate you to a very kind of like responsible and and beneficial place in society, right? Where you can like maybe perform at the most effective and most socially useful uh, level right. that you're capable of, mm-hmm. right? And that also means that I will allocate other people to other positions, you know, whether they like it or not, kind of like weirdly, you know? Right. Um, I mean, it sounds like a perfect world, the way you describe it, right? Yeah, well, you know, like utopia and dystopia are, are you know, embarrassingly close together. Uh, <laughs> True. Um, and, and, and yeah, you know, like I think, I think the fact that, that we... Uh, you know, like don't, if there's no more space essentially for decisions, right? You are essentially also killing free will, right? Like, like, I mean, free will is is a difficult concept in itself. Uh, um, and you know we can we can spend spend a lot of time <laughs> talking about whether or not um, we should believe in it in any case. But in such a situation, you would probably say, "Look, I can predict whatever you're going to do, hundred percent accuracy." So if you commit a crime, that's kind of weird, right? Like, what does it do to our justice system? Because we punish people because we think they are they they made a wrong decision, right? But then the justice system needs to be reformulated to not you know so the narrative of it doesn't can't be anymore you are bad i'm going to punish you so you know so mm. so 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 kind of in as a retribution or as a kind of corrective measure for the past injustice but rather we see human beings as algorithms and our justice system as a feedback loop as a feedback system and so what the what the justice system then does is it nudges an algorithm you know in another slightly socially more beneficial direction so that in the next time you face similar circumstances, right. your decision is affected by the previous feedback you received from the justice system. Even though we all know it's not that you're bad. <laughs> it's just you're, you're unlucky. You were born with a certain brain structure that unfortunately let you collide with one of the constraints that we established in society, right? right. And then we're going to try to nudge you kind of in the, in the direction. And I can already tell you when we're going to nudge you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's um, yeah. So let me maybe maybe pause there on the, on the technical stuff. I think on the moral stuff, there are, you know, I think in ethics 101, you would learn that there are three kind of schools, roughly. Like, so there are the consequentialists that believe that every you know, that morality resides in an action and then in the consequence of an action. And then there are the deontology guys like Immanuel Kant. They 
also believe that morality resides in action, but then the motive for an action, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's like the virtue ethics guys like Aristotle, and then they're, they're always like a little bit like left out, but I actually find them quite interesting. But anyway, one of the problems with consequentialists is that you actually, one of the challenges that they have is actually calculating the consequences of all the actions. Like, how do you know which, which, what the right action is if, you know, if time is infinite and your small action might propagate through eternity in a way that is massive, you know? Right. You know, so, like, how do you know, like, under the circumstances, how do you know what the right action actually is? Right. And I think that kind of like solves the problem for them because they kind of they kind of know now you know you can now predict everything, and they are like uh, they are like yeah I don't have this problem anymore like now we can actually take the actions that are just most beneficial um, for all people or for whatever for for a certain subset subset of people depending on how you define it, mm -hmm. and I would it I would imagine that it makes kind of the um, from a moral perspective the consequentialist case a little bit stronger. I think the last point on the philosophy part I would I would make is if you um, the, the problem with killing uncertainty as a whole is that you need to kill all uh, essentially steps that react to increasingly good predictions. So what I mean by that is if you're a student and I now build a system that essentially allows you to understand vulnerability and you interfere, right? That's still in a context of uncertainty, right? Because you, you, um, you know, um, you, 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 you don't know whether it will work, right? You don't know whether the model was 100% right. And then there's a reaction to you to this uncertainty, right? And then there might be a reaction for me, for your reaction, you know? And then there is a reaction by the school on that reaction. And so all of these, like, re reactions to this, like, thing are, need to be factored in in this one big model. Right. You know what I mean? So, like, mm -hmm. you need to... You need to essentially build a meta model of how the whole world works. You know, right. like you essentially need to create God <laughs> if you want to, wow. you know, like omni omnipresence. If you actually want to kill uncertainty, because none of the problems that we now look at in isolation, like, for example, calculating the risk mm -hmm. of vulnerability or like the level of vulnerability can if you wanted to kill, if you wanted to be 100% certain about it, you actually need to account for everything else that's going to happen mm. in the world, you know, both in the physical and mental space and everything. And so if you want to do that, essentially, you need to, yeah, you need to build God. So, Vladimir, would you like to live in that kind of world? No. Would you? I don't think so. But I, I, I think I've read, or no, I've read somewhere, I think it was even from Tim Ferriss who said, most people would rather be unhappy than uncertain. Hmm. So in that context, how important is uncertainty for humanity then? I don't think, I think the problem is not really uncertainty. I think the problem is that we are not ready for the absence of freedom. We're not ready to look at ourselves as completely determined robots, you know? Even people who believe in the deterministic universe, they, after they make their point that they have no free will, or, right. or that no one has any free will, they immediately forget it. <laughs> they go out and act, you know, and judge others as if we are free, you know? So I think, I, I think there needs to be a serious like mental transformation to actually inhabit a world 
in which everything is just predetermined. That's one thing. I think the other thing is, though, that given that we are fairly complex individuals, mm-hmm. we it's it's kind of it's kind of weird to think about it, but like. I know that, for example, I know that you have a certain reaction to me saying something, right? If I say, right. for example, Karim, um, you are, you know, going to live till you're 80, okay? Or like 120, right? And you're going to have eight grandchildren and whatnot, right? That causes something, right? So you might be super reckless now, right? And then the next thing you do is like jump, jump out of a plane without a parachute, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so then the question is like, what's my true prediction? Is it that you're going to die tomorrow because you jump out of a plane and parachute and that was just like a necessary thing to get you there? Oh, you know? Wow. Or is it, or is it that, you know what I mean? So That's like, absolutely fascinating, yeah. that question. It's nuts. Like, so like who... But could you predict the reaction to that prediction? Well, exactly. That's yeah. a loop of That's infinity. Exactly. Of... Exactly. And this is what I was trying to say. Like, you need to meta, create yeah. God, mm-hmm. right? Like, you need to... You need, like, someone... It's, it's interesting to think about, like, a societal structure in which people can administer this weird truth, you know, and what that, what that means. Because someone needs to kind of essentially say, ah, like, Karim is supposed to die, whatever, like, you know... In a week from, yeah. you know, jumping out of a plane without mm-hmm. a parachute. But someone needs to get him there. So you, can, <laughs> so you go and say like, hey, Karim, like you get, you get a WhatsApp message or whatever we'll have in the future. And you get like, hey, you know what? Like we just like got your results. It's, you're going to die for 80. By the way, here's a voucher for the, <laughs> That's for the plane. Um, but if you would... Bring it down now to the rest of your day, for example. Right. Just that structure of everything is predictable. You would know what happens today. How would you feel? Just imagine how you would feel about knowing what's going to happen. I... I, I think I, I would still feel pretty weird about it because I don't, I, it's hard for me, it's almost impossible to see myself as being 100% determined, you know, determined by, by all external factors. Like there was, a, I think, in the, um, in the history of science and history of philosophy, there was like this big debate, right? Like what's your foundational premise, right? And people like Immanuel Kant, they actually said, okay, Look, my foundational premise is that I'm free and whatever interferes with this premise must be wrong. Mm-hmm. And so if any scientific insights would come that would that would contradict that very basic premise, people like Immanuel Kant would be inclined to believe that the science is wrong rather than the assumption that they are free is wrong. But the problem is we don't have the benefit of the ignorance that Immanuel Kant had because unfortunately <laughs> science has moved on quite a bit and actually proved a lot of good points in the meantime. And so it's not really hard for us, right? Like whatever we, we say about human freedom kind of needs to square with our understanding of the universe. Right. And, um, and so, and even, and, and so I personally think that the case for free will is fairly weak. And even though I'm, I, I believe, I know that, it's hard for me to see myself 100% deterministic. And I think if you would actually prove it to me ultimately, I could imagine that I would be deeply saddened by it, you know, because I still love the fact that there's a little bit of uncertainty, that there's this kind of like, 
small refuge that I can take in order to save. Um, okay, let's add a side what if. That's something we sometimes do. Yeah. Um, what if every event in the future were predictable by 99%? Yeah. So we just go down 1%, just yeah. a little percent. Yeah. Who cares about that 1%, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you know. As you as you as you as you know, it's. I think it's an incredibly important one percent because um, that's a game changer, right? That gets you from God to human. Um, a pretty good human, though. <laughs> <laughs> pretty good human. Pretty good human. But still, uh, you know. Yeah, you'll probably you'll probably still be. Um, you know, you you will not have hundred percent certainty, but the ninety nine percent is still pretty certain. And I think a lot of the same things apply, right? Like if I tell you that you're gonna you're gonna be, you know, with ninety nine percent, you're gonna be hundred twenty with like twenty grand grand um, um, children. It might change your behavior still. It will not change it the way it will change the hundred percent, right? Because then, if you have 100%, you might as well jump without a parachute and you will rely on something happening to save you because it's 100% prediction. I think with the 99%, you will not jump without a parachute. Um, but beyond that, I think it will, it will still allow us to structure our society in ways that are that un resemble nothing like the structure we currently have. Okay. Nothing like it. And I, don't, and, and I think given our mental... like self-awareness and self-perception mm -hmm. i think it's a society that few of us would want to live in okay but which industry or sector would do you think would benefit the most of a 99 percent predictionable structure certainly insurance insurance is already moving in this direction right like so for example there was a big debate in the 1970s in the US between civil rights groups and um, insurance companies because insurance companies wanted to charge different risk premiums mm -hmm. like the, the monthly payment you have um, on your insurance contract for different people in zip codes right and civil rights groups said well that's racial discrimination because the zip codes uh, are you know completely they correlate so much with the racial composition mm -hmm. of certain districts that you're essentially just like discriminating based on race. And the insurance company said, well, you know, like, but, but, but the actuarial fairness, right? Like the given, given if, if you had like a completely objective statistical model, right? Like mm -hmm. what would be the expected damage in that area, right? Like mm -hmm. from say parking a car there or whatever, there's, there's actually just higher than another area, right? And so we need to calibrate our like premiums in a way that allows us to break even and make in turn like a very small profit, right? Uh, that was a very huge debate then. And, and actually the insurance companies won by hiring a couple of academics, right? To write papers that actuarial fairness as a concept is unbiased and objective and, and scientific and all of those type of things. But it's, there's actually a good case we made that it's not as unbiased and as subjective as, as the insurance companies would have you believe. But I think that was really the start of a way of personalizing the premiums, right? And now we're just taking like the next steps here, right? Like now mm -hmm. it's not only about your gender, it's not about only your age. You, I can give you a Fitbit, you know, a Fitbit tracker, and I can right. tell you like, what, do, are you, do you living healthy or not? Do you mm -hmm. work out? What do you eat? You know, I can give you incentives to share this information with me. Mm -hmm. 
you know, uh, and I can tell you that I can link the premium to, to your behavior. Right. Uh, and, you know, that has, that's, that to a certain degree is good because in a way you can say it incentivizes healthier behavior. But what if you have a condition that you can do nothing against, right? And then you suddenly you get it, even though you lived fairly healthy. Right. And now, you know, and now your premium shoots up because you have this condition. It's really, it would be really unfair to you, but it would be good for the insurance companies because they can price, you know, almost to the cent right. what exactly you cost them and then charge you whatever the 5% or 10% profit margin that they make. Mm. So that's one industry. I think the yeah. other, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I think the other, the other thing is that you could, I think you could revolutionize a lot of, a lot of the way we, uh, construct social programs. Like mm. I think in education, even if you go and like you go and like you, you're trying to get unemployment benefits, for example, right? You could predict how long will someone be unemployed? What support do they need? You know, we don't need like if someone is is hopelessly, you know, uh, un, like will be will be unemployed for such a long time. Like, why are we putting the, them through all the kind of like programs and stuff? You know, just mm -hmm. maybe like let's just say like we as society pay for people that have like, you know, in some kind of future of work scenario, you know, don't have the skills anymore and don't have the energy anymore to be retrained, right? So maybe we should just, as a society, just pay for them, you know, and we give them like a minimum right. kind of, kind of like a uh, social security net and that's it. You know, we don't have, to, we don't force them to apply and apply all the time mm -hmm. because like this is, this actually brings benefit to no one, right? Mm, true. Um, and I mean, and you can think about this every, for, for every, for, for, for every single industry, including military, right? Like right. it would be an interesting, like you had like someone on, on phone negotiation, right? Right. And you could, um, you could actually ask yourself, well, what's the probability that the, that the Soviet Union in the Cuba missile crisis yeah. would have, would have actually launched? What's the probability that the US will launch if I do that, right? And you can construct fairly complicated game theoretical models of that. And I don't know, perhaps it will make the world safer, perhaps not. Um, but okay. it would definitely revolutionize the way we think about it. Understood. And which industry do you think would absolutely not benefit of it, of 99%? That's a great question. I don't think. Besides the bad industry for sports. <laughs> maybe, yeah, well, maybe, maybe. So I think benefit is loaded, but I, I'm trying to think first who might be unaffected, right? Okay. Unaffect, I don't think anyone will be unaffected because everyone is to some degree affected by uncertainty. Who will not benefit? Who will be disadvantaged by it? It seems to me that the entities that will be disadvantaged are entities that rely on like some, some form of like information asymmetry um, to to get better outcomes for themselves. So one interesting, I think, thing that you could think about is I think it would diminish the value of brands, for example, on your CV. Like, for example, right now, like if you have, say, you know, you have a degree from, say, Cambridge University, right? Mm -hmm that's generally regarded to be better than a degree from Manchester University. Right. 
But that is just due to the fact that no one has actually the time to look up your actually immediate skill sets. Mm. It might well be that someone from Manchester is actually significantly better than this Cambridge dude, but he has no ability to signal it right now to the employee, mm -hmm. employer. So what might happen is that the employer actually being able to predict much better who will who do this job well, mm -hmm. you know, that it will actually level the playing field a little bit, right? For for like people that are that otherwise might be disregarded for for reasons that just have to do that that they can't really share their the information about themselves in any way that is uh, digestible. Okay, understood. Um, and if we look now into the future and see like uh, industries like brain tech happening, right? Mm -hmm. um, um, was Neuralink from Elon Musk as an example. Mm -hmm. um, and the more we go deeper into the brain and we can change things, do you think prediction will increase over time? Is it something in the direction we're going that the possibility of prediction is coming closer to that 99%. Um, I mean, that's probably what's going to happen, right? Or what, how do you see it? And how would you do it to get there? Yeah. For the benefit of humanity. <laughs> wow. Um, I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, again, right? In order to predict, you need to understand. So, you know, like, say, um, there's a reason why in most um human societies there's an elder you know that is like that you go to 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 seek counsel and advice and the reason is because this person has superior pattern recognition mm -hmm. you know this person usually has like experience that you don't have they see things that you don't see so they use that like you know like um mixture of like better data and better processing power to come up with better predictions, mm -hmm. be better judgment of things. And in a way, this also um, applies, except that we now unlock additional sources of data and additional sources of computational power, mm -hmm. right? So if it is true that Neuralink works, then I can load the whole kind of like Wikipedia in my brain, which would be pretty nuts. Like, you know, like this, this ideal of a universal genius that has been elusive since like 200 years, suddenly like, you know, dependent, dependent on your internet speed, which you can just like, <laughs> you know, just sure. like integrate it. Um, point. Um, and, and the same with computing power, right? Like our computing power is nuts. Like if I can, I can kind of like somehow link my, my computer, my, my, the process, I can borrow AWS mm -hmm. pro processing power. I just have a subscription, you know? True. Um, and I just crunch, crunch and crunch and like, I like whatever the problem is, whatever I see, right? Like, mm -hmm. I, yeah, I think, I think you could, you could make significantly better recommendations and like predictions just because you understand so much more. Okay. Um, and whether or not you, you, I think, use it to the benefit of mankind depends on your ideology and I think the way you perceive other human beings. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a huge debate coming in our society about that mm -hmm. because partially our current ideology is still an ideology of the 19th century, right? Like it's an ideology of the Industrial Revolution mm -hmm. where you... You, you needed, like at some point countries realized that they need a lot of people that have a certain amount of uh, education to be productive in this kind of new society. Before that, you used to have peasants. You put the male peasants 
in your army. <laughs> you know, you teach them how to fight, and then you go and fight, and then otherwise they're farmers. Then in the Industrial Revolution, you had this idea of, you know, like professional soldiers. You had like office work, like weird office workers came about. You know, like this, th th this kind of prof professionalization of like craftsmanship and, and and this kind of like scaling up of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, all of that required a workforce that was more educated. And so we built this massive social welfare system right. to actually cater to this economy. But if, you know, and, and, and so the, the, the dominant challenge, I think, of, you know, the, that time was exploitation, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so you, you needed to have a lot of people. And there was this battle about like, how much you can extract out of them, right? Mm -hmm. That's an important battle to fight. But the problem, I think, of the 21st century, if technology develops the way we think it develops, will be that people will be made redundant, you know? And being, um, being exploited is almost better than this other challenge that you face, which is that you are just redundant. Like, you can get, we can get rid of you mm. as a society, you know? Uh, if we don't need you anymore, right? So there's this kind of like, so there's this kind of, th this idea that we discussed, right? Like maybe someone will not be able to find a job in this new future of work scenario, mm -hmm. right? There isn't like what, so, you know, like the only thing that is, that is, that is keeping us from actually getting rid of someone. It's the same reason that, is, that, that, that we have for, for not getting rid of old people, <laughs> which is that we have a certain moral understanding, right? Like of like who, who, who human beings are. But first of all, not everyone shares that understanding. And second right. of all, as the m number of people grows that are maybe not economically as productive as, as, we, right. as, we, as we would expect them to be, you know, there will be an additional pressure on this type of ideology. And it will be interesting to see how this conversation kind of plays out. Okay. I think one thing that I think will be also important and that I've learned from the discussion with you is if I would create a word, let's call it prediction economy, maybe that word even exists, I don't know, um, <laughs> then it would be important that not only some people have access to be have better predictions about the future, but the whole society, right? Because otherwise, only a few people could benefit a lot from prediction and having better predictions than others. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's something to to get a better understanding for, for society, because I think a lot of people don't know how far prediction has come already, right? Right. Um, so if you could go down on that for like just a few thoughts, super quick. Yeah. Well, I think the unequal distribution of predictive power, right? I think maybe mm -hmm. maybe kind of to, to echo that is an incredibly important point. And I think it's important for two reasons. So one, it's important because we already see that you can use predictive power to actually extract and exploit a little bit more. You know, mm -hmm. that was, I think, the discussion with insurance companies in the 70s, right? right. Like they used the, the unequal distribution of essentially like, you know, statistical kind of understanding um, to shift this public debate in their favor, right? The other thing is, I think that predictive, predictive power goes hand in hand with this ability to digitalize and to, to do certain things that you otherwise you know, needed maybe need a lot of people to do, right? And here, the very quick, I think, story is one that, like, I think that Piketty would tell, right, um, is that you have a growing inequality between people because for most of 
human history, the returns from capital are higher than the returns from labor, right? So if you start being one of the smartest people in the world, but you start poor, yeah. you will still be behind a person that is completely dumb, but uh, and just happened to inherit a couple of flats in London, Chelsea. Fair point. You know, um, and what this unequal distribution of predictive power does is it puts this additional productivity gain on the capital that already exists, on the machines that already exist. And you can use that to turn an incredible amount of profit, like as social media companies show you, right? Or Spotify uh, show you, or being algorithmically matched to a driver when you take an Uber, right? Like all of those things make machines so much smarter and they replace people in the process. And so that kind of supercharges this, the, the returns from capital. It diminishes to, further the returns mm -hmm. from labor and it makes sure that like our society is just continuously growing apart mm -hmm. and in, in this kind of un, in, in becoming more and more unequal. Understood. Um, before I come to my last question, um, you mentioned when I talked about the word uncertainty, you also mentioned the word freedom, right? Yeah. Um, and if you look at all those changes that happen in corporations, um, corporations want that their employees reskill and learn more, they have to change and people don't like change, right? right. It's just something they don't like. Um, and they even don't like uncertainty even less. So um, how do you balance those two words, freedom and uncertainty? What is the common thing they both have? And what do people need to understand if, if they don't like uncertainty? Do, does it mean that they have to give up a certain amount of freedom? to become more certain? Or what is the balance between those two words? Yeah, there's a lot in that question. Um, I think people will not really have the choice, unfortunately. Technology has a nasty habit of developing whether people like it or not. So what will happen is a growing recognition among people that increasingly people can predict what they will do. Mm -hmm. And this realization will be increasingly difficult to square with their self-perception as autonomous, free uh, agents. And... There will definitely be this uh, backlash against this technology. There will be some politicians calling to forbid it and so on and so forth. And then there will be some who will start getting adjusted to this idea. And then maybe, yeah, um, maybe getting even comfortable with it. Okay. Maybe saying that, you know, they will vote for political parties that actually you have some kind of ethics code with which those predictive systems are used. Right. And then otherwise they will do, they will love to benefit from the services that are the better services that are provided as a result of this technology. And I think you see that a lot with social media as well. People are routinely outraged by Facebook. Mm. But ironically they post about it on Facebook, which then uses that information to update its algorithm. Right. And sell them things more effectively. <laughs> so, 
So, um, so you know, it, it seems it seems it, it seems like a parallel process there as well. Okay. Um, then the last question. This might be also a complex one, but we try to narrow it yeah. down for the yeah. usage and benefits of the audience. Yeah. If anyone in the audience wants to become ten percent better in understanding prediction systems or becoming better in predicting things, yeah. And someone who wants to become ten times better, what would both do? Okay, so if you want to become ten percent better, my recommendation is to find five people whose judgment you trust and ask them to make a prediction. And then use those five data points together with your judgment and synthesize it into a better prediction. That will usually give you at least 10%, if not more. Mm -hmm. If you want it to be 10 times better, and I'm not even sure it's, it's possible, <laughs> <laughs> depending how bad you are, I guess, <laughs> you know, depending <laughs> what the baseline is. But if you want it to be 10 times better, you would need to in, you would need the help of machine learning algorithms. You would need to build a large data set. You would need to make sense of that data. Uh, through machine learning algorithms, there are several, several kind of steps that you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You would then extract certain insights, make certain, make, make certain recommendations. And after that is all done and you've improved your own judgment, I would show again the same information to your five <laughs> people that you trust and then still synthesize it. Because I think because I think it's in the synthesis where most value is actually lying, and I don't think that human judgment will be replaced anytime soon. Awesome, Vladimir! Thank you so much for being with us. I absolutely enjoyed this talk. Thank you so much. Have for a great me. trip to New York. Thank you. <laughs>